of firsts for presidential candidates, a phenomenon that has taken even seasoned political analysts by surprise, a growing grassroots movement born on the internet to elect a virtual unknown to the highest office in the country. It began on a popular online chat site where Diana Falzone hosts a weekly talk show. It all started as a joke. Somebody called in and said, hey, I've got this great friend who could be president. And I thought, you know what, we have access to a lot of people, so why not see if we can make it happen? But no one could have anticipated what happened next. What began as a joke turned into a groundswell of popular support for a candidate nobody had ever heard of. All of a sudden, literally thousands of people were chatting and texting in to support this random person who they didn't even know for president. And I thought, what have we started here? What they had started was what political analysts are now calling a massive nationwide political movement. We may be witnessing an historically unprecedented situation where an unknown candidate uh, poses a, a tangible threat to Republican and Democratic candidates in this contest. Across the country, people from all walks of life are making an extraordinary show of support for a candidate who, so far, no one has ever seen. How about you ladies? Who are you voting for? Would you like me to show you? Sure. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Looks like this is one candidate who's coming up from behind. For Channel 3 News, I'm Colleen Hayes. Okay, enough of that. Uh, welcome to Overlay Christian Church. We're excited to be in the middle of our series on hot topics. This is the hottest topic yet. If you want to grab your notes out of your bulletin, you're welcome to do that. This is politics and Jesus. And I'm convinced if we can make it through this week's message, we can make it through anything. Uh, if I'm making an assumption that this room is split, there are a certain number, percentage of you Republican, a certain percentage of you Democrat, uh, I can predict that 100% of you will be offended by something in today's message. And uh, I, I do want to tell you this, that however the election goes on Tuesday, on Wednesday morning, you can be sure of two things. Whichever way it goes, Wednesday morning, two things will be true. Number one, God will be on his throne Number two, political commercials will be off the air. That's right. And there was much rejoicing. Uh, what we want to do is jump right in. And so if you're filling in the blanks, you're tracking with the notes, the first thing, the action step, number one, is we need to pray. We're called to pray. And again, I'm, today what I'm going to do is go completely after Jesus, bringing Jesus into the discussion. So I'm going to be speaking primarily to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. If you're here and that's not you, I, I do want to say welcome. Uh, hopefully today you'll be informed by some of the wrestling uh, that Christians, followers of Jesus, go through. We are called clearly in the scriptures to pray. And to pray for those who are in leadership, those who are in authority. One verse I put on your outline, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and following. He says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. You might want to underline that line. 
This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. We are called to pray. We're called to continue to pray, regardless of, of our disagreement with policies, with politics. We are called to pray because leadership is something that God allows. Leadership is something that God calls. We are called uh, in this nation to pray for those who are in leadership. So let's begin by doing what we just started talking about. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to pray as a united uh, group of men and women. We want to pray for those who are in leadership currently. We want to pray for those who will be in leadership. Jesus, we ask that it would be your wisdom that floods into their minds. We ask that you would be the one that they seek for guidance. Jesus, we do ask for your spirit to move powerfully. We know that you have blessed our nation. We ask that you would show us, Lord, how to be a blessing. We pray all of this, Jesus, knowing that you hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're called to pray. And I want to continue uh, to urge you and, and urge you to continue to pray regardless of how the election uh, turns out. This week in preparation for this message, I, I want you to know I've read hundreds of Bible verses, different passages of scripture. I've read probably dozens of articles, excerpts from books. Uh, I found a few that I thought were especially compelling, and so if you're interested in additional uh, work, I'd give you a few names. Number one, Ron Sider is a guy who wrote Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Very interesting. He, he's got some uh, really rich and very deep theological views. Uh, Rick Warren, many of you know, he wrote The Purpose Driven Life. He's also the one who hosted the uh, forum, the Civic Forum, earlier this year where both Obama and McCain were on the stage. And Greg Boyd wrote a book called Myth of a Christian Nation. Very compelling. Uh, I'll also admit that I cracked Stephen Colbert's I Am America and So Can You, uh, in which I learned that we are one small typo away from being the world's first demo-crazy. Uh, I did want to tell you one quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters creates a scenario where he imagines one senior demon giving advice to a junior demon on how to keep humans like us confused and lost. So this is sort of demonic advice, right? And this is what he says. Let him begin by treating patriotism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce. Once he's made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man, and it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Isn't that interesting? The real bibliography that I'd pitch to all of you is the Bible. This is God's word and it is God's will and this is God's heart for us and it contains everything we need in order to figure out how do we maneuver through these difficult times. Specifically, I want to talk about Jesus bringing his heart into the very center of, of this discussion, this issue. I would give you sort of a caveat on the front end. This is not going to be a political message at least not in the way that I know some people wish that it was. And here's the reason. You cannot legislate anybody to God. You can legislate a lot of things, but you can't legislate a heart to God. You can legislate social decency, societal functionality. You can even legislate what I would call social morality. 
but you cannot legislate a heart to God. And a heart is exactly what Jesus is interested in. Which is why when you look at Jesus and then you look at the Apostle Paul, uh, between them, most of the New Testament is given to us. And Paul is the one who wrote underneath kings, like Nero, who would light Christians on fire in his garden for lighting. Paul, the one who told us to pray for those in leadership above us. Paul, the one who instructs us to submit to the leaders that are presented to us. Both Paul and Jesus are what I would call frustratingly apolitical. So they could have engaged, they choose instead to go a different route, and the reason, I would argue, is because Jesus and Paul understood you can't legislate a heart to God. Now the reason why we know this is because for hundreds of years, throughout the Old Testament portion of Scripture, we see that God governed his people through a system called the Torah, or law. Now, nothing is wrong with the law. Inherently, it is good. What we see is that it is legislated holiness. It is morality legislated. And we know the law is good, and we read verses like this, Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. We understand the value and the strength of the law that God has given us. But here's what's interesting. The law did not promote love, even though it was its highest aim. So in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, we see we're called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Leviticus 19, 18, we are called to love each other as we love ourselves. That's the highest aim of the law, but unfortunately, you cannot make people love through legislation. And that's just one problem with the law. The other problem is that human beings keep breaking the law. We just don't have the power to keep the law. And we know from other passages in Scripture, such as in the book of James, when you break one of God's laws, it's as if you've broken them all. And so, friends, this drives us further and further from God. It leaves us at a more and more hopeless place. And this is why the good news of the Scriptures is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the provision from God that provides the fulfillment of the law. We read this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 and following. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Friends, this is the good news, that all of us can be saved by Jesus, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what spiritual road we've walked, no matter how we've voted. Please understand, we are not saved because we keep the law. We are saved because we trust in Jesus, and then once we trust in Jesus, he's the one who helps us keep the law. It's his power in our lives that allows us to keep the law. Now, you can't legislate anyone to God, but once someone is with God, then you can see by the power of God's Spirit, they can live the life that God has called them to live. Now, here's why I bring this up on the front end. I bring this up on the front end because it is important for us to recognize you cannot expect people to act like followers of Jesus Christ until they are, in fact, followers of Jesus Christ. And that's the problem that happens when the church 
uses power to impose moral law. So once the church uses power to impose moral law, then you can bet that either, number one, people will disobey the law and their hearts will be driven far from God, or number two, people will obey the law and their hearts will still be driven far from God because it creates what's called a toxic, toxic legalism. Friends, what God is most interested in is our hearts. That's why the prophet says this, and later Jesus quotes it from Isaiah 29, 13. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. So we ask ourselves the question, what is more important to God, a heart or a nation, a soul or a government? And friends, the answer is going to be the soul. It's the heart. You know why? Because that's it's eternal. It's immortal. Every single one of us will live for eternity. By comparison, the government, lifetime of a government, even if it's a hundred years, a thousand years, even if it's, you know, several thousand years, it's still over in a nanosecond compared to your soul. That's why Jesus came to seek and to save lost souls, lost hearts, lost lives. Jesus' perspective is going to be so completely different than our own, it's going to be very difficult to even engage in this issue of politics as we seek the mind of Jesus. But there are many problems that I see uh, uh, happening in our country as it becomes more and more polarized politically. It's that Jesus seems to be getting hijacked by both parties, and he's the one handing out their talking points. It's as if there's a cardboard cutout of Jesus on each stage in the, you know, the uh, conventions, and he's wearing a blue suit and a red tie, and he's Buddy Jesus. Hey, you know, I'm on your team. And that's just not true. Both sides, we don't see them simply disagreeing. We see them demonizing one another. Both sides far more interested in getting elected than they are in actually working together to solve the problems that America faces. And because of this polarization, real solution finding is prevented. So when it comes to politics, I think it's time for followers of Jesus really to ask God for a new perspective on everything. In Christ, we are called citizens of a different kingdom. We have a dual citizenship. Here in America, we're citizens of this worldly kingdom, but we are also, we are citizens of his kingdom. It's a totally different kingdom, far above this earthly realm. And what we are called to do is to bring his kingdom to bear in this fallen world. I would argue we can't do it through politics. In fact, I would even argue that when we try to bring God's kingdom to bear through political or legislative means, we end up with something that doesn't look at all like God's kingdom. And friends, I'm not the first person to say this. It goes hundreds of years back. Even Soren Kierkegaard, the Christian philosopher, was the first to pen these thoughts. So a couple of things to keep in mind when it comes to politics and Jesus. The first thing is, remember this, heaven is not a capitalistic democracy, okay? Just important to get that right out up front. Please don't take this out of context. I love democracy. I think that capitalism is the best economic system that exists on this fallen planet. Friends, I believe that America is the best nation on earth, but it's still as close to hell as any of us ever need to be. Okay? So project yourself forward to that day when you are in heaven. Is there any indication that it's going to be like American civics on its best day? Rule by the people? 
checks and balances. Friends, we are going to be so completely humbled, so overwhelmed by the majesty of God. We're going to be so completely in awe. We're not going to be talking about how, how do we form a committee and vote on something. Like, that's just not it. The Bible says this in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. One chapter later, you read in chapter 22, verse 3, No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. We will be in awe. We will be worshiping God, tangibly present in our midst. Friends, nobody votes in heaven. It's God's ideas, period, right? Like, no committee, there's no veto power, there's no, uh, hey, everybody gets a voice. We, uh, uh, in fact, I just want to say even the whole idea of capitalism is fueled by scarcity. But in heaven, there will be no scarcity, no currency, and no need. The, the wheel of commerce will simply be driven by God's, uh, fueled and, and focused on God's incarnate presence. He will be wealth enough for all. This is what's called a benevolent dictatorship. It's impossible to model here on earth. So we don't even try. We know absolute power corrupts absolutely. In heaven, however, his absolute uncontested power is a beautiful thing. God's incomprehensible power and, pres power and presence fueling everything completely for his glory, for our best, forever and ever. Amen. That's a picture of what it's going to be like. So I would call politics a necessary evil here on earth. There's not going to be any politics in heaven. We should, and it is a good thing to talk about and strive for good things in politics, just as it is uh, good for us to engage in and to strive for good things in, say, dental work, right? It's exactly the same. Uh, we should go after good oral hygiene. That's a beautiful thing. It's a necessary evil right now. But friends, even the best day at the dentist leaves you pain and bleeding, Right? So we understand this. Which brings me to my next action step. Not only the first action step is to pray, the second action step is to vote. It's coming up this week. I want to make sure that everyone knows they're encouraged to vote. The Bible says we are obligated to obey the authorities placed above us. Since we live in America, we actually have a freedom to choose to some degree who those authorities will be. So friends, vote. Vote. I recognize readily that this is a flawed system we live in, no doubt, but it is the best flawed system on the planet. So vote. We could be living in a country where they would simply inform, of, inform us of our leadership uh, with the wrong end of an AK-47. And so we are thankful we don't live in that kind of a context. Please, vote. Again, pray and then vote. Amen. And then pray again. But don't vote again. That's illegal. So you, you pray and vote and, and then pray. I just remember that heaven is not a capitalistic democracy. The lesson for us in the here and now is we begin by submitting to his authority in our lifetime now so that we spend our lifetime practicing for that time when we are with him and when submission to his authority will be a good thing and a holy thing and an honorable thing. 
Number two, not only heaven is not a capitalistic democracy, but number two, mercy is a big deal. The heart of God, we bring Jesus into the discussion, mercy is a big deal. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. So if you deserve punishment, you don't get it. It's called mercy. You deserve wrath, you don't get it. It's called mercy. We love mercy. I I love mercy when I'm the one receiving mercy. I don't love mercy so much when I'm the one who's called to extend mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it. So we see that this makes sense, this idea of us not offering mercy to those who would require it. We say, oh, but we must hold the people responsible. Yeah, okay, but what about mercy, right? God chooses to give us mercy. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. God's the one who gives mercy. We say, yay, God, thank you for you giving your mercy to me. It's a wonderful thing. But then when God says, now turn and give mercy to others, we go, you don't understand how it works down here, God. Jesus is the one who teaches this incredible and just this audacious truth. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and following, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So can we just be clear? These verses kill any pipe dream of having Jesus be in charge of our foreign policy, right? Just, it just destroys it instantly. I mean, can you imagine how these verses would have gone over after, say, 9-11? Turn the other cheek? You gotta be kidding me. They struck us. They spit on us. They mocked us. They killed us. We must retaliate. We must hold them accountable. And friends, I indict myself in this because I was driving in my car and my emotions were swirling. I'm thinking, now who can we nuke? Like I was, just, I was so angry. What did Jesus do when he was struck and spit upon and mocked and killed? He says these words... Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Friends, this kind of mercy, it actually crosses the line into radical and amazing grace. This is an impossible ideal, and yet this is the ideal that Jesus set. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He lived this, he taught it, and then he died communicating it. And I just want to say very clearly, this agenda is not on any party's docket. Nobody wants to be soft on crime, soft on terror, soft and forgiving on anything that makes you look like some kind of a flower petal fluffer. I don't know what that is. (laughs) So we don't want to. We say, give us an eye for an eye. That's in the Bible, right? Somewhere. It is. And I'm not articulating a stance for one party uh, against the other. I'm simply saying Jesus would be merciful. And you might hear me say these verses and you go, well, it doesn't sound like Jesus would be that great of an American politician. Bingo. Like, you got it. That's exactly right. So let's stop pretending that he would. If mercy is a big deal to Jesus, the lesson for us is to live mercifully. 
We look uh, to Jesus, we see, okay, heaven, not a capitalistic democracy, mercy, very big deal to God's heart. Number three, the poor are close to his heart. The poor. Poverty is the root of so many issues socially. The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. I would agree with that wholeheartedly and even add this, that lack of money ushers in a ton of evil as well. There's an overwhelmingly disproportionate correlation of poverty to crime, poverty to abortion, poverty to the death penalty, poverty to drugs, poverty to lack of education, poverty to lack of opportunity. Friends, that reality breaks God's heart. Does it break yours? Issues of poverty affect education, crime, drugs, immigration, race, welfare, abortion, and the death penalty. We don't know how much, but God absolutely does. And it's God incarnate who says this, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Jesus has a very special place in his heart for the poor. We see this all throughout scripture. And in fact, we see that one of the ways we will know that we are his and followers of him is if we wade in and begin to minister to and serve the poor. He tells us this at the end of Matthew in chapter 25 when he says, whatever you give to the poor, it's as if you give to me. Whatever you serve to the poor, it's as if you're serving me. Whatever you withhold from the poor, you've withheld from me. And we see our society, the way that it's set up today, society favors the wealthy. We just know this. And so when you look at James chapter two, I put those verses on your outline, you'll see that we are specifically called to avoid this kind of favoritism. And what that means is we must care for the poor, we must honor the poor, dignify and help and aid and assist the poor. And I don't think it matters to God who does it or how they do it. For example, John F. Kennedy back in the day said the government needs to do it. Ronald Reagan in his day said the private sector needs to do it. The point that Jesus makes very clear is we just need to do it. The haves are called, commanded, and even created. They're blessed to be a blessing. The the haves are blessed to care for the have-nots. It's a biblical mandate that we read. The reality is the poor are close to the heart of Christ. We are called throughout Scripture to care for the poor, the stranger, the alien, the widow, and the orphan. And if you'd like to do some study this week, read Isaiah chapter 58. And you will see that this is unequivocally God's heart. Jesus keeps going on this concept. I'm going to read you a verse, which is just one more reason why Jesus is not electable today. Luke chapter 6, verse 24 says, Woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. (laughs) Jesus, what are you doing? This does not go over on a stump speech. Uh, You can't start a fundraising dinner with these verses. Uh, What are you doing, Jesus? And I read these verses, and I think to myself instantly, well, thank God that I'm not rich, right? Thank God that that's not for me. And then I remember when I was in India and we were driving through town in Delhi and there was a young mom and she had several children around her and they were, they were one of just hundreds and hundreds of families along the road begging. So I rolled down my window. We didn't have any food or anything and I, all I had was some bills and so I, I gave her a dollar bill. 
And we got to where we were going, and I ended up kind of just talking it through with our host missionary, the, the group who was hosting us. And they said, well, that's very generous that you gave her a dollar, Mike. They said, uh, do you realize that in our town, a construction worker is actually paid quite handsomely? And a construction worker in Delhi will work a 14-hour day, and at the end of that day, he'll receive his day's wage, a dollar. And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I am wealthy. Maybe that does mean me. Woe to the rich, he says, but who are the policymakers in our land? Who are the lobbyists? Why do big businesses get involved in politics? The ones who have the money and the power are able to influence legislation. Friends, all parties are interested in money and power. How much money has been spent on this election? Right? You think we could figure out just the collective brain power here? Could we figure out how to make something good happen with that kind of money? Instead of just literally like... I don't know if you remember the uh, Tom DeLay fiasco a couple of years ago when he was indicted for... Uh, bribery. You remember this? This uh, I don't even know the whole story about uh, this lobbyist kind of a deal that the practice was going around. And th- the big scandal was that that people on both across the party lines had accepted bribes from this guy. Like even the Green Party accepted some potted ferns. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. No, money, it's a, it's, a, it's a corrupter. This idea of us gaining power. And so here's Jesus' famous quote on cash, on government, on the separation of church and state. And I'm just gonna call this out right now. This is gonna make us all uncomfortable, which is another reason why Jesus couldn't be elected today. Matthew 22, verse 16. Uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're testing Jesus. Teacher, they say, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That really was a good question to trap him, much like a lot of the questions that are used in debates today, right? And the question had uh, two prongs of a trap. If, if Jesus said pay taxes to Caesar, they could incite the crowds against him because the Roman system was very corrupt. There was a lot of evil in the Roman system. We'll talk about it in a moment. And so Jesus would have said, hey, support an evil system. But if he said, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they could have stirred the other crowd up saying, hey, look, Jesus is in rebellion against the Roman Empire. He is a troublemaker. He is inciting a revolt, and and they could take him down from that direction as well. So it really was a question, and it had two barbs in it. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. What was going on in Rome that your tax dollars would have gone to support? Roads, aqueducts, education, state-sponsored orgies, vomitoriums, late-term abortions, so late that they actually called it infanticide. Did Jesus really say, pay the taxes required of you? Did Paul really say that we are to submit to the governing authorities of our land? Yes. 
Yeah, Jesus tells them to pay taxes even with the evil that was systemic in the Roman government. And yet I know Christians, I know Christians who think it's a game to lie on their tax forms and to not pay their taxes. They do this with a wink. And if that's you, I just want to say, and I want to say this from a biblical perspective with love, you're sinning. That's a sinful perspective. You're not obeying Jesus. I meet people who say that we shouldn't support the poor with our taxes, knowing that the poor are close to God's heart. Okay, like I'm willing to entertain that line of thinking as long as your story is one of supporting rescue missions with your funds, supporting rescue missions with your hours, of inviting the poor and the homeless into your home, of adopting the orphan into your care, of caring for the widow, of caring for the elderly, because if you're against the government caring for the marginalized, then the other option is you do it. It really doesn't matter to God who does it. It just matters that it gets done. And you flip to the end of Matthew chapter 25 and you read that passage of scripture and you see if we're not doing it, it's our soul that's on the line. And so we better be involved in this process. And that's just one prong of the verse. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And that's hot. It's a hot topic. But the other prong is even hotter. Give to God what is God's. How much do you think Jesus was talking about? 10%? That's the Old Testament standard. See, in the New Testament, we see a new covenant in which we are completely, we are completely re-envisioned. The Bible calls us new creations. And we now are stewards of God's money. We don't own anything. It's not 10% God's, it's 100% God's. It's all God's. And so we're stewards, we're managers. This is the, this is the, the uh, parameter that Jesus himself sets up. And so even if I were to just say, okay, well, let's just, all we'll do is we'll take the Old Testament standard and we'll bring it into the New Testament day. Let's just use 10% as a rough It's not a shock to many of you that nationwide in America, those who consider themselves Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, give on average 2% of their income to God. 2%. And I don't just mean to the church. I mean any charitable, you know, kind of uh, even close related, you know, parachurch organization or humanitarian cause that someone could consider to be for God. 2%. So it's so funny to me that, that there the same people say, well, I don't want to pay taxes that go to support the poor. They say, I, I don't think the government should care for the poor. I think the church should care for the poor. Say, you're ripping the church off 80%. Yeah, if you think the church should be involved in caring for the poor, which I believe with all my heart, then friends, let's at least be faithful to an Old, old Testament standard of what our generosity should be. It's just, it, it's amazing to me just that the cloudiness of the thinking and really the selfishness. We talked about that a little bit last week. You know, if you open up to the book of Malachi, this prophet named Malachi, he says, let me very clearly tell you what's happening when you don't give God what's God's. He says, you're ripping him off. You're stealing from God. And what's so incredible to me is 
that we live in the, the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen. And it is so phenomenal to me that the wealthiest, most blessed, the, the most bountifully abundant nation the world has ever witnessed has produced the least generous, greediest, most consumeristic, materialistic followers of Christ that have ever been called by his name. God has lavishly blessed again and again and again on our lives. And we continue to give him pennies. And then now that the economy's kind of messed up and maybe the blessings aren't so lavish, what do we say? God, what's happening? What an irony. Friends, I, I just want to say this very clearly. Some of the people who are so sure that Jesus is on their side are going to be blown away to find out they're not on his side. Mike, you are bringing me down, man. I like it when you're funny. <laughs> Tell us a story about your dog, bro. <laughs> Following Jesus is so radically invasive into your political, financial, sexual, social world. But I hope what is being clearly shown today is that you cannot hijack Jesus for your cause. You can follow him, submit him, serve him, love him, or be saved by him. But you cannot lead him, hijack him, distort him, or make him serve your agenda. And I know some of you today were hoping that I would come in and declare that Jesus would be a card-carrying member of your political party. And you're disappointed that I haven't. But in light of what we've talked about today, let me ask you, is your political party completely submitted to the absolute authority of Jesus Christ? Is your political party radically merciful and compassionate? How about this one? We didn't even get into it. Is your political party consistently valuing all life like Jesus? The idea of valuing life, such a big topic, we're spending all of next week's message on it. Is your politically, political party passionate about the poor? Is your party giving to God what is God's? Of course not. Of course not. Politics doesn't function like this, which is why Jesus would absolutely not fit into the system. That's not to say that he wouldn't engage and do what he has always done, which is call it to repentance, reformation, and transformation, the exact same thing that he's done in our lives. And that's why these words written thousands of years ago are still relevant to us today. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, if my people who are called by my name, friends, that's those of us who have identified with Christ. We're following God through Jesus Christ. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, oh, love humility, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So can a Christian be involved in politics? Yes. And if so, how? The question is, of course. I, I placed a verse on your outline. It's from the Apostle Paul who extorts us to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to our earthly nature. And then there's a long list that follows. The reality is that all parties need people who are pure, guileless men and women of integrity who have been revolutionized by Christ. All parties need people who will speak the truth, 
All parties need people who will view all lives as equally loved by the creator God and the savior, Jesus Christ. So we're called to pray and to vote and to pray again. I encourage all of you to participate politically. I encourage all of you to love those who disagree with you politically. And I want us to recognize that Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Democrat. Friends, Jesus is not an American. Jesus is Jesus. And we might join his side, but he does not join ours. And I want to close with a passage of scripture that illustrates just how different God's perspective is than ours. This is in the book of Joshua. Joshua, God's appointed leader, leading God's chosen people into the promised land. This is just prior to the battle of Jericho. And Joshua approaches a man, and this is a larger-than-life figure, and he's holding a drawn sword. And so Joshua is interested. Who is this man? He goes, and he begins a dialogue with him. And this is how it goes, Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Isn't that the question in our hearts? Are you for us, Jesus, or are you for them? Answer, neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Friends, when we come to a message like this, we are so tempted to ask, Jesus, are you on our side or are you on their side? And the the commander-in-chief, the real commander-in-chief answers that question. I'm not on either of those sides. But I am the commander and I am here. And then we have to respond. And my prayer today is that we would respond like Joshua that we would fall on our faces before Jesus, recognizing that where he is is holy ground, that we would give him honor and praise and glory, that in deep humility and gratitude, we would praise and worship our commander-in-chief, knowing that he is on the throne. Okay, why don't we pray together? Jesus, I do wanna thank you for how you love us no matter what. I want to thank you that you do not legislate hearts, but I confess that you own mine, and I know I don't speak alone in this room. You are so patient with us. As we muddle through issues like politics, you are so patient with us, and we are thankful for that. My prayer today, Jesus, is that you would continue to do your work of growing us, of allowing us to be more and more after your heart, your perspective of loving more, of caring more, of giving more. Jesus, we recognize today that all of us in this room, we have things that we've held to as sin, things that we have looked to, power, money, resources. We've, we've held ideologies in place of you. And for that, we are We are humble. We're repenting, Jesus, today. We want to cast all of that down. We simply want to worship you and honor you in reverence. 
And we pray, Jesus, that you would meet us here. We pray that you would meet us in this nation and that you would continue to unfold a good work in this land. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.